The People's Constitution, the path to empowerment of Australians in a 21st century democracy by Bronwyn Kelly. Read by Bronwyn Kelly. Chapter 7, Part 5. The Importance of an Australian People's National Voice for a Just Reconciliation with First Nations. In the Uluru Statement from the Heart, First Nations have irrefutably asserted that the ancestral tie between the land, or Mother Nature, and the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples is the basis of their sovereignty in that land, and further, that this sovereignty has never been ceded or extinguished. It coexists with the sovereignty of the Crown. The extent to which the Crown may consider that this is irrefutable is unknown, given that the said Crown has never countenanced open discussion of the matter. However, irrespective of the Crown's silence, it is impossible to conclude that the sovereignty of the Crown has been established and confirmed as though it is just. A dispossession as brutal as that which was perpetuated on Australia's First Nations, one in which no treaty was struck in accordance with the laws of either party so as to legitimise the theft of an entire continent, from its original owners, cannot be considered just. But despite the scale of this injustice, Australia's surviving First Nations have called for a makarata, a coming together after a struggle, to supervise a process of agreement-making between governments and First Nations and truth-telling about this history. They are saying to non-Indigenous Australians, let's establish a fair and truthful relationship and if we do, we can walk together to a better future for our children based on justice and self-determination. It's a straightforward, but at the same time, deeply thoughtful proposal to make peace with a state which has prosecuted wars and committed crimes against humanity. Australia has been constituted as a nation by means of the most grievous crimes, crimes from which the descendants of the perpetrators still benefit and the descendants of the survivors still suffer. But for those non-Indigenous Australians who may be ready to accept that there is a need to come together after this 230-year struggle and strike a just and fair reconciliation, there is a problem. The problem is that the state itself, which, for the purposes of agreement-making, or shall we say, a just treaty, would need to come to terms with a form of sovereignty that is very different to its own Hobbesian form, is not trustworthy. The Australian state can certainly not be considered honourable as a potential treaty negotiator or signatory, given its track record of refusal to enshrine human rights treaties in Australian law, particularly rights of self-determination, its refusal to give anything other than provisional support to the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, and its conduct in relation to the few laws it has made to provide some sort of restitution to First Nations on native title, conduct which is often obstructive and makes it as difficult as possible for Indigenous owners to prove title and claim benefits from land ownership or transactions. Aboriginal peoples know that the state they must deal with if they are to establish a fair and truthful relationship and a mutually beneficial coexistence of sovereignties, 
does not have a track record of good faith in its treaty negotiations. And in relation to justice with Indigenous peoples, the state has exhibited a dishonourable interference and obstruction, even to the point of suspending its own laws to allow for racist interventions. As eminent Indigenous anthropologist Professor Marcia Langton insightfully put it in the SBS series The Australian Wars, aired first in 2022, quote, Aboriginal people are, I wouldn't say resentful, I would say burning with a desire for justice. And if you have been treated unjustly, if there is this great injustice that hangs over your own life and the lives of generations of people before you, you will naturally feel unwilling to grant the modern-day state an honourable place. You simply won't want to while this great injustice underlies all relationships." This implies an entirely logical and justifiable reluctance on the part of First Nations to rush into a treaty with the Australian state, and it may shed some light on why the word treaty was not used in the Uluru Statement, and why a voice in the Constitution was considered to be the priority. It seems as though there was a sense at Uluru, within the assembled wisdom of those who had come from all points of the southern sky, that the Australian state itself was not yet ready for the sort of treaty that would guarantee the justice Indigenous peoples have been denied for so long, although many of the Australian people may well have been ready for it for decades. Clearly, from the point of view of Indigenous peoples, the injustices they have suffered have not yet ceased, and while they persist, while the truth of it all remains untold and unacknowledged, the state which we might otherwise expect to enter into agreement-making processes in good faith is likely to be seen as none too well credentialed in good faith negotiation of treaties, let alone a treaty, for coexistent sovereignties. It is quite unlikely that the Australian state could be classed as one ready to come to the negotiating table with creditable honour, especially since that modern state of which First Nations are so rightly suspicious operates on a legal system that is simply not structured to countenance a multiplicity of sovereignties and self-determination for its populace. Indeed, I would argue that until we restructure our system of governance, so that it may support a multiplicity of sovereignties and self-determination for all, a just treaty with First Nations is not likely to be viable. The fact is that the Australian state is not yet trustworthy as a party to such a vital agreement. It is still too fond of its exclusive system of power, and as such, First Nations are right to be wary. After all, the agreement that may arise from any Makarata could be likely to set arrangements for sovereignty in legal stone for decades or even hundreds of years to come. Neither party should want to get it wrong. That is, neither party, assuming they both aspire to be good-faith negotiators, should want it to turn out unfairly. Neither party should want to reinstate injustice. Doubtless, the Makarata Commission, to which the newly elected federal Labor government devoted funding in 2022, 
will begin, among other things, a process whereby both parties can learn to understand the differences between some very different systems of law. First Nations law, the law of a colonial state, which is what Australia's constitution still is, and the system of lawful relationships contemplated in the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. A full understanding of these differences is likely to be necessary if agreement makers are to find a way to make the two sovereignties coexist in a manner that each thinks fair and just. The fact that the Labor government moved quickly in 2022 towards establishing the Makarata Commission was proof of its good faith intentions and was an encouraging turnaround. It implied that the Labor government aspired to create a treaty consistent with the full breadth of the aspirations of the Uluru Statement, namely for coexistent sovereignties based on justice and self-determination. But it will be a big project, and moreover, a project made more difficult by the structure of Australia as a modern state which does not yet admit self-determination as a right. It is a project that may be made impossible outright if neither Indigenous nor non-Indigenous people have a voice to Parliament. However, this whole task can be made easier if the modern state, as it operates in Australia, is itself open to change. If the modern state can be opened up to wider democratic inclusion, or in other words, if the modern state can become a people state, working on a model of the many in the one, rather than the one over the many the pluralist voice, rather than the silence of the electors. This transformation is possible if all Australians are accorded a voice in the Constitution alongside all the human rights that should flow through to them from the International Covenants on Civil and Political Rights and Economic, Social and Cultural Rights. In fact, the transformation of the state necessary for a just treaty with First Nations is only possible if all Australians are enabled by the Constitution to express their commitment to a future of peaceful coexistence of sovereignties and to say that it is by our will that this shall be accorded the status of law. Putting that another way, a treaty which establishes coexistent sovereignties based on self-determination is not possible at all unless Australians expressly establish it as their sovereign will. To do that, a people's national voice must be enshrined as the political right of all Australians and it must coexist with an enshrined Indigenous voice. If we can achieve that, we should be able, finally, to realise a benefit for Australia that has been seen by many as essential for decades. In 1992, the International Year of the World's Indigenous Peoples Former Prime Minister Paul Keating spoke of this when he said that the point of the year was, quote, to bring the dispossessed out of the shadows, to recognise that they are part of us and that we cannot give Indigenous Australians up without giving up many of our own most deeply held values, much of our own identity and our own humanity. Nowhere in the world, I would venture, is the message more stark than it is in Australia. We simply cannot sweep injustice aside. Even if our own conscience allowed us to, I'm sure that in due course the world and the people of our region would not. There should be no mistake about this. 
our success in resolving these issues will have a significant bearing on our standing in the world. Unquote. At the time, Keating imagined we would have this problem of the nation's founding, its dispossession of the original possessors, fixed within the decade. He felt emboldened to rely on the fact that Australia had made a great success of multiculturalism. He said, quote, Isn't it reasonable to say that if we can build a prosperous and remarkably harmonious multicultural society in Australia, surely we can find just solutions to the problems which beset the first Australians, the people to whom the most injustice has been done, unquote. He assumed Australians had an appetite for reversing this injustice because they had been, quote, ever so gradually learning how to see Australia through Aboriginal eyes, beginning to recognise the wisdom contained in their epic story, unquote. He then said, quote, I think we are beginning to see how much we owe Indigenous Australians and how much we have lost by living so apart, unquote. And so, with the optimism of the time, Keating concluded that, quote, we cannot imagine that the descendants of people whose genius and resilience maintained a culture here through 50,000 years or more, through cataclysmic changes to the climate and environment, and who then survived two centuries of dispossession and abuse, will be denied their place in the modern Australian nation. We cannot imagine that. We cannot imagine that we will fail. And with the spirit that is here today, I am confident that we won't. I am confident that we will succeed in this decade. Unquote. Thirty years later, though, we are probably no closer to succeeding in the just solutions Mr Keating imagined. And as Professor Langton has said, a great injustice still underlies all our relationships. For as long as this injustice remains unresolved, it will continue to poison the well of trust we should be able to draw from to build a new, inclusive form of the modern state, one that can sustain a much stronger participatory democracy for all. If trust is to grow, we will need an open forum where all policy cards can be laid on the table and assessed as to whether they suit the people's sovereign will or not. We will need a space and a process by which we can speak up about the nation we all want, a space where we can use the full diversity of our voice to create a new context in which a treaty with First Nations can finally be settled so that it guarantees self-determination for everyone and thereby ensures that justice rather than injustice underlies all relationships. If Australians want to live in that prosperous and remarkably harmonious multicultural society that Paul Keating imagined, the reality in the 2020s is that they will need to usher in a form of statehood that sustains a multiplicity of sovereignties and self-determination for all its peoples. If they can achieve that, it would surely be the best outcome imaginable. But to achieve it, we will need a constitution that can support a multiplicity of voices in the body politic. This should not be difficult if we instigate a process of national integrated planning and reporting, and if, within and alongside that process, we accord First Nations the constitutional right to their own voice. 
the right of First Nations to participate in decision-making on matters which would affect them is already supported in Articles 18 and 19 of the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Australia is a signatory to this declaration, and so parliaments and governments should have no difficulty complying with the obligations they have already accepted under it to, quote, consult and cooperate in good faith with the Indigenous peoples concerned through their own representative institutions in order to obtain their free, prior and informed consent before adopting and implementing legislative or administrative measures that may affect them, unquote. In summary, governments which want to bring Australians together should have no difficulty allowing a multiplicity of voices and all the institutions and processes necessary for their harmonious articulation of the future they want to create. And should we succeed in that, the benefits we can enjoy will not be confined to a harmonious society. They will include a vastly increased capacity to deal with the existential threat we all face, regardless of our racial or ethnic origins, climate change. In the following section... I will outline how we can access those benefits if we establish a national people's voice in the Constitution. Chapter 7, Part 6 The Importance of a National People's Voice for a Sustainable Future in the Age of Climate Change According to the annual Lowy Institute polls, in the 16 years between 2006 and 2022, the proportion of Australians who wanted the government to do something to prevent climate change never dropped below 80%. As early as 2006, over 90% wanted the issue to be addressed, with approximately 70% of that group wanting something done immediately, quote, even if this involves significant costs, unquote. This indicates strongly that the vast majority of Australians wanted the country to get started early on heading off the problem of climate change. And in the years since 2017, the same proportion, 90% on average, have responded that steps need to be taken to deal with the threat. So while the people of Australia at the start of the 21st century had the foresight to see that it would be in their interest to begin taking steps sooner rather than later, even if this involves significant costs, or at least consider taking steps that are low in cost, successive federal governments failed to establish a plan to prevent or mitigate climate change, and conservative governments in particular used any argument they could, no matter how unfounded, to kill off every chance of the Australian people to rise to the challenge of climate change and protect their economic interests. If lack of imagination and respect for the wishes of the Australian people were a crime, then this disregard of their interests would have to rank as the highest of crimes imaginable, only one step down from actual genocide. No other event in human history comes as close to wiping out the future of the planet, the species it sustains, and the possibility of prosperity for future generations, as does the world's inability to organise itself to prevent global heating. And the Australian government has, for most of the 21st century, played a leading role in that global disorganisation. 
By their constant bickering at home and their destabilisation of the international negotiation process under the Paris Agreement, they have brought us to the brink of a catastrophe. It makes it no easier to stomach this failure of political leadership by a very wealthy, advanced country to observe that it could all have been avoided. Plainly, if we had taken up the challenge to reduce emissions when Australians first wanted to deal with the problem, probably from as early as 1990, we could have easily afforded a transition to a new Australian economy based on renewable energy, leaving us with room to help other nations get their carbon emissions down. Australia could have showcased what developed countries should have been doing all along, global leadership on phasing out fossil fuels, and we could have significantly strengthened our economy in the process. As it is, all we have succeeded in doing is narrowing down the time we have to deal with climate change from 25 or 30 years to about three. In 2022, that is how much time we have left before we and the rest of the world emit so much in tonnes of greenhouse gases that we lock the planet irreversibly into heating above 1.5 degrees Celsius. That is how much time we have left before we reach a point where every dollar we spend on trying to reduce emissions is exceeded, probably several times over, by the cost of repairs we must make, if they're still possible, to ensure that our children can live safely on a heated planet. That is how much time we have left to ensure that our children can afford a decent standard of living. Prevention would have been much cheaper than cure, but we have missed our chance for that path. As a result, the standard of living that future generations of Australians may attain is not going to be as high as the standard of living enjoyed by generations of the post-World War II era. That statement is, of course, open to dispute, but this only goes to show that all efforts should be assembled to prove it wrong. Proving it wrong should surely be every caring citizen's aim. This implies that the most important questions for Australians today, having been left with this abject and very expensive failure of leadership by the Australian partisan political system, are how do we assemble ourselves so that we can ensure future generations will be able to afford a decent standard of living? How do we reassemble our democracy so that this crime against all our futures never happens again. It should be notable here that I have not suggested that the key question should be about how we might reassemble our economy so that future generations have a better chance of a decent standard of living. Of course, it is essential to restructure the economy for that purpose, but this can only be achieved if we open a space for it to be restructured according to our specified will. That implies that before we can restructure the economy, we must give ourselves the chance to specify its purpose. What do we want our economy to be for? Is it to be for the benefit of the few and some corporations, or should it be established in a sustainable form that supports rewarding opportunities and continuous improvements in living standards for everyone? Should it be structured so that vital services are fully accessible and that scarce resources are conserved and fairly shared? And should it be restructured so that national wealth is fairly raised and fairly shared? 
These are all fundamental questions that we have never had an open national conversation about. We have never coherently specified our will for the economy. But if we want to build a new one, this is a conversation that is long overdue. Until now, however, we have not had our democracy set up in a form that will allow us to have that conversation, let alone have it in a manner that is orderly and therefore likely to establish a clear vision for the economy we prefer to build for our future. So the question about how we should reassemble our democracy is a necessary precursor to our ability to restructure the economy. We need democratic arrangements which enable us to assemble our national voice. This is all the more urgent because if we are to head off the worst impacts of climate change, it is not only the economy that needs restructuring. Our capacity as a society needs to be lifted to underpin our chances of building a sustainable economy, as does our approach to environmental management and consumption. Social capacity, or what some would call social capital, is in decline in Australia. From the late 1990s, it was hit hard by attacks from the Howard, Abbott, Turnbull and Morrison governments on Australia's education system, and from some state governments. The proof of this decline in social capacity is clear in the decline in scores for Australian students compared to other OECD nations in the Programme for International Student Assessment, PISA. Between 2000 and 2018, mean performance by Australian children on PISA scores declined steadily in reading from a score of 528 points down to 503, in mathematics from a score of 524 down to 491, which is below the OECD average, and in science from a score of 527 down to 503. In 2018, Australia ranked 30th out of 38 rich countries in scores for enrolment and educational attainment. We had a greater proportion of our children left at the bottom of the literacy scale than 29 other developed countries. And the situation was made significantly worse under the Morrison government's attacks on higher education during the COVID-19 pandemic, attacks which resulted in the loss of 40,000 jobs. 35,000 in universities, and another 5,000 in the vocational training sector. The failure to invest in tertiary education makes no sense at all from an economic perspective, bearing in mind that economists at Deloitte have found that investment in higher education returns much more to the economy than it costs. As the Saturday paper's Mike Seckham reported in 2017, quote, Deloitte Access Economics reported in 2015 on the contribution of tertiary education to Australia's prosperity and found that the socio-economic benefits accrue both to those directly engaging in university-led activities and to society at large. In some cases, and in research especially, it is broader society that is by far the greatest beneficiary. Deloitte valued the contribution of tertiary education to Australia's productive capacity at $140 billion in 2014, of which $24 billion accrued to the tertiary educated themselves. The spillover effects, it found, 
meant that for every one percentage point increase in the number of workers with a university degree, the wages of those without tertiary education qualifications rose 1.6 to 1.9%. Aggravating this decline in social capacity is Australia's record in gender inequality. In 2021, although women in Australia were ranked at the number one spot for educational attainment in the World Economic Forum's Global Gender Gap Report, the report showed that women have otherwise been prevented from contributing to the economy as much as they might in Australia. Their educational achievements have not translated to jobs and job pay at the same rate as they have for men. Between 2006 and 2021, all other rankings in the report dropped for Australian women. In women's economic participation and opportunity, Australia ranked 12th in 2006, but 70th in 2021. In women's health and survival, Australia ranked 57th in 2006, but 99th in 2021. In women's political empowerment, Australia ranked 32nd in 2006, but 70th in 2021. If Australia is to be able to build an economy that will allow us all to maintain our quality of life and standard of living in the face of climate change, we will obviously need to maximise our social capacity. In short, we will need to stop building inequality into our socio-economic arrangements and stop systemic exclusions of significant portions of the potential workforce. A much broader conversation than the one confined to the economy is required to achieve this. That conversation also needs to be orderly, if only because it is a much bigger conversation than we have ever attempted. In reality, it will not be possible to have it at all if we do not create an orderly framework in which to assemble all our diverse voices and integrate the strategies most likely to push us towards a sustainable future before climate change overwhelms our current social, environmental and economic capacity. The most likely framework that can suit that purpose, in other words, one that is efficient enough to help us make up for lost time, is of course an integrated long-term planning framework, National IP&R. National IP&R can turbocharge our remaining potential for preventing the worst effects of climate change. This is because IP&R can integrate preventative efforts so that the sum of those efforts will be greater than the individual parts. Because it can be equipped with independent data about our current well-being and security, it can help us take account of the multiple causes of our various breakdowns and we can synchronise our preventative efforts with curative efforts, the former making the latter cheaper and cheaper as time passes. Developed countries like Australia are very well placed to make a success of this because the technological solutions they will need are already well developed and they have enough total wealth at their disposal to pick up speed in reduction of greenhouse gas emissions. It is unlikely that any country will pick up enough speed to prevent heating above 1.5 degrees Celsius, but there is still time to prevent further heating. Every 1% of a degree counts. 
every 1% of a degree of heating that we avoid is a massive economic saving. Every 1% of a degree of heating avoided is a lifesaver. Bearing in mind the scale of the benefits Australians may enjoy and the scale of the costs they may avoid if they choose to organise themselves to build a coherent voice on their preferred future, there is no reason to deny Australians the opportunity to step into a more influential space in their democracy, a space in which they can work together for that future and impress a coherent idea of it on those they elect. There is certainly nothing to be gained by passing up the opportunity of participation in an efficient process of agenda setting, especially one which benefits both electors and the elected in terms of what they can achieve for future generations. The chances of success in such a reform will be increased if, in addition to the process we might invoke for enshrining our human rights, we also enshrine one additional right the right to a national people's voice. In the next section, I will propose an option for this purpose.